Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Fettles, and I want to welcome everybody today to our show. And um, we are being sponsored today by Hiawatha Broadband Communications, which is an FTTP provider that's committed to connecting rural communities and economies to the world. You can check out Hiawatha Broadband at www.hbci.com. And uh, just a brief reminder, we uh, we do have a chat room. If you are listening live and on our um, homepage, check that out. Jump in, put in your two cents worth, ask a question, and uh, have a good time. All right, so our guest today is Lev Gonick, who is Vice President for Information Technology Services and Chief Information Officer at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. He's also the founder and now board chair emeritus of One Community, which is uh, involved in a major uh, deployment throughout northeastern uh, Ohio. And uh, last year, uh, Lev and his colleagues at Case Western Reserve launched the nation's first gigabit fiber to the home research program, which is called Case Connection Zone. So, Lev, welcome to the show, and I'm very honored to have you on our show today. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be on your show. And uh, you are indeed keeping very, very busy, and uh hope you find some time to sleep in there somewhere, because <laughs> this is pretty pretty impressive stuff you got going on. And, uh, well, thanks. Uh, you know, actually, uh, it's the kind of stuff that gets you out of bed in the morning every day. No doubt, no doubt. Now, I had Blair Levin in yesterday, and uh, he actually gave a you know a good opening summary of the um, the University Community Next Generation Innovation Project, which mercifully is being shortened to Gig.U and. Uh, and I think this is creating a lot of news for folks and a lot of interest among uh, communities that are looking for additional avenues for pursuing broadband. So at its core, what is the purpose of Gig.U? Well, I mean, Gig.U comes out of work that Blair and his colleagues obviously architected during the development of the National Broadband Plan, Connect America, uh, in which uh, they in, uh, focus in on uh, the research uh, and development area. One of the chapters focused in on essentially opportunities for creating test beds for next generation network connectivity, and they highlighted um, a, a number of uh, areas where that kind of activity uh, might well succeed you know, in a kind of controlled Petri dish kind of fashion, and, and one of the areas... Uh, was the university uh, communities. Uh, obviously, um, you know, there's a lot of different activity on university campuses. We have enjoyed, most of us, very high-speed broadband connectivity on our campuses. And um, I, I think the general uh, idea of Gig.U is uh, to try to leverage uh, the density of uh, use and the uh, innovation and creativity that goes on around college campuses uh, to try to um, create uh, a network of test pilot um, communities for next generation network connectivity. The actual you know, specific, specific tactical goal of Gig.U is really just to articulate that there are some 33, 34 uh, university communities, all of us research universities, uh, who are interested in this activity and take that aggregated demand uh, to the marketplace 
uh, and see whether or not uh, we can engage, uh, you know, existing providers, uh, emerging providers, and, and, and nascent providers uh, in engaging with us, uh, you know, either regionally or locally. Mm-hmm. So, first question that comes to my mind, because clearly I'm a community broadband advocate, uh, meaning, I, you know, I feel the, the community should have a role and a controlling interest in it, you know, in, in some aspect of the operation, not necessarily they run it and operate it and sell services, but that they are um, determining, you know, how this works and and who gets coverage and, and so forth. Um, does the gig.u program allow for um, that kind of thing to happen? In other words, if a community decides, okay, we want to do a public-private partnership and we want to use, you know, Gig.U as a stepping stone to you know uh, to consolidate our interest and consolidate interest by any number of providers and vendors. That, will that work? Well, in principle, uh, it it definitely affords that opportunity. I mean, there is no you know predetermined script for what Gig.U uh, you know thinks in advance i mean we do, we have a value proposition which is again aggregation of demand if you know if you're sitting there with a, a capital on the sidelines and you're kind of going where do i place a bet um and you're looking for evidence uh, of a demand uh, and you've argued for some period of time that there's no interest in ultra speed broadband in this country and all of a sudden 30 universities representing some hundreds of thousands of uh, staff and faculty and students who live around the university uh, say that we are interested, then all of a sudden you have at least reduced some part of the risk uh, analysis that you have to do. And, you know, trying to target these uh, neighborhoods uh, certainly is, is uh, you know, one way of uh, trying to create the scaffolding necessary uh, for investments. And as far as whether or not neighborhoods uh, are in a position to articulate their own interests through, you know, a collective action uh, as a neighborhood in this activity. I, I know I'm entirely sure that you know the reason Case Western Reserve is interested in this activity is precisely for that reason. I mean, we uh, we have been engaged in a, a a nearly 8-year journey to try to provide uh broadband connectivity uh, around the region and and we see gig.u as an opportunity uh, to uh, try to take it to the next level um, in a way that continues to uh, honor and respect uh, the efforts to uh, keep uh, the engagement uh, open, focused on community priorities, uh, you know, engaging in in, in activities uh, that actually um, are about partnerships between universities uh, and their immediate neighborhoods. So again, I think all of that is. All of that is in play, uh, and again, I don't think that there is any pre-scripted uh, end game here in terms of um, you know how to try to choreograph 34 different university solutions. I, I'm almost entirely sure there is no one-size-fits-all. Um, all of that, I think, uh, Craig, will will come together through the process uh, that you explored with with Blair, which you know, in short, for listeners who didn't hear, you know, really is about putting together a request for information which is well underway, uh, and uh, then trying to engage in what might be described as a kind of discovery process, um, which is to say, you know, we're going to try to have folks who are interested um, in uh, attending to the articulation of of demand uh, get together around the table and start 
uh, seeing whether or not uh, we have a coincidence of interest between demand and the availability of of uh, supply in the form of capital and technology. Okay, so maybe using uh, the, the the case connection zone as a backdrop, in practical terms, how could you see this playing out? Right. So you've identified the, the the universities to participate. They have an internal need for for high speed connectivity, uh, which makes sense. So if I happen to live in the community that's close to one of these uh, colleges, what may I see, might I see unfolding as the college moves the program forward? Am, am I going to be the, you know, is my neighborhood going to be the catalyst? Is the university going to be the catalyst? You know, how, how could this possibly right, roll out? Right, right. Well, so, I mean, you know, each city has its own story to tell, and mm-hmm. so it is a tale of, of 34 cities. Um, obviously, you know, universities are, are situated, um, you know, in in cities or in rural communities, and, and you know, those those relationships are, have to be honored and respected. That's what I mean by not, you know, finding any likelihood of one size fits all, although they'll right. probably be, end up being some models. And so, you know, here, you know, a scenario that certainly makes uh, sense in the Cleveland, Ohio context is that our university, Case Western Reserve, you know, has been a neighbor uh, since, uh, you know, it's, it's founding uh, over, uh, you know, 180 years now. Um, and it, you know, it has uh, deep relationships with uh, the communities, uh, the commercial areas, the residents, the healthcare facilities, the libraries, the museums all around us. Um, and as this uh, project uh, unfolds, uh, we would hope to be able to demonstrate that there is interest in extending um, the 104 homes that the university, in partnership with IBM and with Cisco and with Genexus and with One Community, have demonstrated that it's how to actually design, build, and operate a, a, a neighborhood gigabit uh, fiber to the home uh, effort, how to uh, scale that and replicate that in the immediate neighborhoods around us. and. You know, if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm a small, if I'm a resident, um, obviously, in addition to uh, the kinds of, uh, you know, uh, one megabit services or five megabit services or ten megabit services, I'm also hopefully going to get afforded something that is uh, very substantially uh, higher than that at a price point. If I'm a small business in the neighborhood, I imagine that uh, there may be interest uh, in that. Um, and if I am actually a, a provider of services, so for example, if I'm a, a healthcare clinic, um, all of a sudden uh, I'm going to be looking for really, for, I hope, provocative ways of taking advantage of this huge broadband to provide never-before-seen methods of health and wellness uh, in the community around us because um, I can do things through interactive video, for example, that make it possible to do a frontline um, Health consultations, uh, which might you know afford me all kinds of good health outcomes, as well as better uh, management of of the uh, pool of residents in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. In which case, I might be interested in subscribing to it, and maybe even affording uh, people who are in my healthcare practice um, a subsidy if they'll participate in um, an online uh, telehealth consultation service. So you're you're testing and and so forth. Now is there going to be someone responsible for I don't know keeping a record or a chronicle of 
the the, the progress. So I mean, you've you've got um, you've got this in essence a network of thirty some odd uh, universities as members. But is there going to be? Is it up to each each um, community uh, each uh, college? To create the, you know, we did these kinds of things and this worked, this didn't. Maybe other people want to try X, Y, and Z. Just, well, I imagine there'll be. A, I mean, you know, again, the role of the universities, uh, specifically in these activities, Craig, I think are, are contingent on the local circumstances. So sometimes, you know, the universities may well lead. In others, uh, you know, we may end up being uh, equal partners. In others, still, we may end up being a junior partner with uh, the city or the municipality, uh, or in our case, you know, we're working with um, obviously the carriers, but in terms of articulating um, our interests, we're working with University Circle uh, Incorporated, which is actually a, uh, an organization that binds the three cities around our university, Cleveland, East Cleveland, and Cleveland Heights. Um, and you know how that story gets told, uh, you know, there's a lot of ethnographers and anthropologists at most of our universities, with a bit of luck, it'll be the stuff of, you know, uh, capstone honors theses or MAs or PhDs. Certainly, it's been our experience through one community and through the Case Connection Zone that in addition to receiving the services, uh, it, it's been the subject of a lot of different kinds of uh, research activity. And, and perhaps, uh, again, I, I'm just speculating, if gig.u uh, finds a reason for continuing to be in business after uh, you know this effort gets kicked off, then maybe it becomes a vir the virtual home for um, a collection of amazing stories of the ways in which uh, universities, their communities, and others are leveraging it. Or you know it may end up just falling to uh, to some other kind of capacity to share those stories. Okay, I can see where that can can roll out. Now, yesterday Blair and I. Talked a lot, but not exclusively about uh, this in the context of, of um, rural communities, because a lot of our conversation had to do with rural communities. But I want to talk a little bit about the urban communities, because you know, if you look at the broadband stimulus and where a lot of the money, where the lion's share of the money went, you look at conference session topics and media coverage. Uh, I think people get the impression that the only problem facing urban communities is one of adoption. You know, if you build a lot of uh, computing centers and you, and you run some broadband adoption programs, that addresses the urban need and then we can move on. Now, from what you've seen, you know, what's the typical state of broadband infrastructure in low-income uh, urban areas? Well, you know, I... There probably is something to you know the availability of infrastructure, but I guess from our experience over this last decade, working you know in and around one of the poorest cities in America, Cleveland, and even poorer still, although smaller, East Cleveland, um, you know, for us in our own analysis, it has less to do with access uh, than it has to do with relevance, and I think that that's essentially you know absent compelling reasons to uh, adopt uh, broadband infrastructure, it's simply not in the world view, in the, in the experience of, of people uh, in and around the university experience. So yes, uh, you know, for us, as we've been dealing with the rollout of our uh, effort at um, developing, if you will, digital literacies uh, in the neighborhood, it's yes, being able to put them in front of computers 
and obviously broadband, but it's around thinking through curriculum uh, that are very real, uh, very relevant, and hopefully compelling that leads to real material uh, or health-related outcomes, like being able to better monitor your own uh, health, like being able to actually apply for a job, like being able to do actually an online tax return, like actually being able to uh, work on a uh, work to secure uh, access to a job board, uh, working on actually helping your grandchild with uh, their science homework. I mean, all of those things I think uh, are all about relevance and creating compelling use, rather than uh, simply saying that you know in East Cleveland uh, there is uh, 100% availability uh, of uh, you know broadband, and why there's only 38% adoption is because, quote-unquote, people don't think, you know, that they can afford it. Uh, I simply um, I, I simply don't buy that. Right. Now, one of the things that I uh, uncovered when I was working on my first book about the Philadelphia Wireless Project and what was the subject of a study done in the D.C. area several months ago uh, was the disparity between um, affluent areas and low-income communities in cost versus speed and, and quality of service. In essence, low-income subscribers were paying more and receiving less, or there was just a, um, a poor quality of service because of uh, aging infrastructure and so forth that was being updated in more affluent areas but not uh, being ignored in low-income areas. Do you think that these uh, that these kinds of conditions exist in other urban areas, and and what leads to this type of disparity? Well, I mean, you know, I, first of all, it's it's a reality that the price per per kilobit um, for uh, entry level packages, uh, which is quote unquote you know the cheapest way to get online, the so called affordable way to get online, is more expensive per kilobit. Than um, any of the more um, you know higher end offerings that are out there, um, and why that is so, um, I think is you know a really really important question to pursue, um, because it it you know it does have the uh, the appearance of it being a kind of red circled activity where uh, you know you're basically more cons- potentially having to deal with uh, you know increased activities associated with accounts receivable um, I mean these are the kinds of justifications I've heard from from the providers uh, for these uh, you know entry level packages then typically in terms of um, how many people stay on their how many people stay on their offerings at the higher end um, but the truth of the matter is you know we don't have a, uh, a compelling uh, rate chart that really shows um, that that you know as a, you know at the entry level you know if you have only 15 bucks a month to spend on broadband that you're getting uh, per kilobit uh, the same uh, price as somebody who's prepared to pay uh, $79 in order to get uh, you know a, a 10 megabit uh, connection. Mm-hmm. Now, can potentially the urban Gig U members address some of these issues, you know, as they move their projects forward. I, I don't really know. I mean, it's it's um, you know the goal of the Gig U initiative is is really focusing in on next generation 
uh, ultra broadband services with the understanding that those are not just wireline services but also wireless services. In that context, you know, are there opportunities for creative uh, partnerships to find ways to uh, provide um, uh, alternative uh, you know, forms of subsidized access? It's possible, I, I imagine, but you know, the primary the primary activity of the Gig.U initiative is to focus in on developing that next generation platform to afford the development of next generation products and services and applications. Um, and, uh, you know, that is perhaps not the singular uh, cause or reason to create Gig.U, but it's certainly the leading edge of the activity, and we're, and we're certainly focused in on that. Uh, are we all, are most of the urban universities uh, interested in attending to uh, issues uh, of the digital divide? Uh, absolutely. Um, are there ways that we can do that in partnership? Uh, with uh, housing authorities uh, or with uh, neighborhood uh, community development centers, uh, local churches, local health centers? Uh, the answer is yes to all of that, um, but only once, honestly, in terms of capacity, only once there's enough uh, serious next-generation infrastructure uh, in the immediate neighborhood. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, you end up uh, in a kind of daisy uh, chain situation where you really don't have enough broadband uh, availability anywhere and you end up trying to triage uh, rather than simply saying, you know, if we build an undergirding of a next generation infrastructure uh, and we're able to connect it uh, as far out into the community as possible, uh, and then, you know, we begin to think about, you know, how to uh, link, uh, you know, the last uh, a set of blocks that are just uh, beyond this neighborhood, you know, then it becomes a very different conversation. Right. And then maybe the the, the question I might should have phrased differently was maybe, you know, how can the low-income communities in those areas capitalize on the program? Because those things that you're talking about, uh, you know, setting up and getting, uh, like, providers, maybe healthcare providers to offer a particular service and so forth, it would be the the, the community thinking through, well, what do we need and what can broadband facilitate? So then let's bring this as a package of ideas to the GIGU member in their particular area. Yeah, and, and, and again, I don't see that as being ruled out. I, I don't think, again, that that represents the leading edge activity. Could there be, you know, in Cleveland or in uh, Detroit, you know, in Ann Arbor or, uh, you know, in uh, Chicago or any of the other schools that are, you know, urban, urban-based, uh, could there be some interest in bringing a comprehensive package through? Uh, absolutely. Again, I think that this is all about trying to uh, validate the assumption that this does not have to be a set of binary choices between what's good for the university and what's good for the community. If we can shift it from an or statement to an and statement, then it becomes what can great research universities do and attend to the priorities of the communities around them. Mm-hmm. Will there be um, a limit on the number of people who can, or residences or whatever, that can participate in the program, or is that a member-by-member member decision? Well, you know, I mean, I don't know how each and every community is defining the encatchment area for their uh, proposed rollout activities. Mm-hmm. I suspect, again, all of that will get revealed in due time through the you know RFI process. Um, and as that does, again, I think you and probably all of your listeners 
will know that as you roll out services, uh, you know, on day one, you know, you're not connecting the last person on the block. Um, you know, on day one, you know, you're typically, you know, rolling this out in a kind of hub and spoke fashion. Um, and, uh, you know, you certainly need to be prepared to attend to it. In terms of capacity, I don't see in principle there being any reason why somebody would be, if they lived in the in catchment area, that somehow because of lack of, of, of you know, drain, in, in other words, in, because of lack of access to the Internet, I can't imagine that being a rate limiting issue, you know, I could imagine all kinds of other technical reasons for, you know, why it might not be possible on day one to offer, you know, um, an advanced network service uh, to everyone uh, in the encatchment area on day one. Because mm -hmm. it uh, was interesting, one of the questions I got through LinkedIn, one of my LinkedIn followers was about, um, was about the GigU program and said, well, you know, what they got to do is, is you know, open this thing up to everyone and everything, which I take to mean, you know, looking at, uh, you know, in, embedded Wi-Fi technology in, um, you know, homes and, and, and uh, multi-dwelling units as security measures and sort of machine-to-machine -machine technology. You know, you so just do the whole thing because then you'll really get a better feel for, you know, what you can do when you bring this to more places, which... Um, you know, seemed seemed a reasonable seemed a reasonable uh, question. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the uh, case connection zone. So you started this last year, right, in 2010. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we actually just to kind of bridge it from the last conversation. You know, we were under construction and we had lit up a uh, you know a demonstration house uh, actually. In uh, March of uh, 2009, and then in May 2010, uh, we actually opened up all 104 homes uh, in a two-block two uh, area, uh, immediately um, you know adjacent to uh, the university. So it's 104 houses. Uh huh. Plus, okay. yeah, plus our original demonstration house. Okay. So what factors influence the the university's decision to move forward because there may be uh you know people in other university communities that might want to try to, you know, convince their local community to do a similar project. I mean, how 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 did the university well, in, in case Western Reserve, how did the administration or the department or whatever decide that this was a viable uh project to pursue? Well, in my view, uh, someone needed to demonstrate a living proof point of a gigabit fiber to the home research program, um, and um, we decided uh, with uh, expressions of interest from our faculty in the School of Medicine, in the School of Engineering, in our social work school, in our business and management economics uh, program, uh, that uh, you know this uh, aligned well with uh, their interests. Uh, we had uh, because this, the uh, two blocks are in the immediate adjacent area from the university. We've had long relationships with Hessler Street, which is the, the name of the of the actual block, and Hessler Court. Um, and so certainly we had good good uh, working relations with with uh, that uh, community who've uh, had lots of firsts. Uh, as a as a historic neighborhood, uh, they've had a lot of uh, firsts, and, and certainly they've had a lot of interest in 
uh, technology. Uh, so there was a, just a good alignment between the interest in a living proof point, a beta block, uh, an attempt to demonstrate that uh, these could be uh, and statements rather than or statements in terms of what was good for the university and the community. Um, and then an ability to to uh, you know relatively quickly um, uh, identify a community that was uh, you know not only close by but for which you know we had an opportunity to socialize. We held held small town hall meetings. Uh, we did door to door. We engaged the landlords, many of whom obviously are just that and not actually residents um, of the of the homes uh, in the neighborhood. Um, and really kind of uh, de developed um, a good appreciation for the kinds of things that the neighbors were interested in um, and then sought to marry that to, to the research and to, again, the, the idea of building one of these uh, because, um, you know, in truth, uh, when we did this, the design requirements, Corning had never really built one of these before with the, at least a new kind of uh, uh, fiber that uh, was being proposed, and uh, there was there was no readily available customer premise equipment that actually supported gigabit. Um, and uh, you know, one could go on and on in terms of first, um, it, we decided that in addition to, to a lot of people wanting to talk about it and a lot of people or some people wanting to debate the issue. Uh, we would create a, a, a living sandbox uh, for the research community and learn some things along the way. Cool. And speaking of learning things along the way, what kind of economic impacts have you seen so far uh, in, the, in this particular community? Well, I mean, we've seen a couple of things uh, that are worth uh, sharing. Uh, one is uh, we've certainly had uh, the lowest turnover uh, ever uh, in terms of tenants. Uh, this has become an attraction. There are waiting lists of people wanting to move into and rent in the neighborhood. Uh, we've had a number of people, uh, relatively small numbers, but there have been relatively uh, interest when homes have gone up for sale. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of interest and the availability of the gigabit uh, network is always featured prominently in all of the promotional activity of the neighborhood over the last period of, let's say, 14 or 15 months. Uh, we've had uh, a number of startup companies, uh, some of which are home-based, uh, and that has led to uh, 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 some interesting economic development opportunities, both in the community as well as case alum, for example, um, you know, starting up new companies to serve uh, gigabit neighborhoods, which we have uh, a couple of examples of that, which has been good, even though in at least two cases, those individuals don't actually live in the neighborhood, but they are now providing next generation services and getting interest from venture and, and other forms of investment. Uh, we've certainly had, uh, you know, some important uh, learning outcomes uh, associated with things like performance in, in high school science. Uh, just today, the Cleveland uh, school system released uh, all the details related to how all the schools did in their uh, high school science activities. And one of the projects we were working on is connecting our some of our students who live in Hessler Street as uh, science mentors for high school students. And I'm sure uh, it was only one very small contributing fact, but the local high school in the inner city right across the street from the university uh, called uh, uh, the College uh, Prep uh, High School 
uh, you know, scored uh, outstanding grades, and at least in part, uh, there was interest. Uh, I mean, there was uh, thank yous, and actually now expanding the program to include some in-service teaching for teachers of science this year from the high school, st- from the college students living in the residence halls, directly back to teachers um, in in the high schools. We've had we have a number of. I mean, there's a lot of kind of quality uh, of life activities. We have. Uh, an autistic young man in the in the neighborhood, and he now has some very uh, satisfactory uh, interactions using video conferencing with both his his extended family that takes him all the way to Iran, actually, as well as his healthcare uh, community around him. We have a number of uh, early onset Alzheimer's patients, uh, and so there's a whole range of things going on for senior citizens. Uh, that are leading to reports of, of, you know, some interesting, again, quality of life improvements that we continue to uh, to measure. Uh, I guess all of those, Craig, I say, I would say, are early evidence of of value. That's an incredible laundry list of of, of things, though. I mean, when you think about it, it's an area. I mean, it's 104 homes, but how many blocks? You said it's a couple of square blocks. No, just two blocks. Those are two blocks. Yeah, I mean, they're not. And again, it's a, it's a campus, right? So a lot of those homes are multi-dwelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but yep, there are 104. Some of them are single. Uh, most of them are, are, you know, have been split up um, into multiplexed uh, homes over the years. But yeah, it's uh, you know, two city blocks. Because the essence of this is, um, you know, with that as a starting point, you know, being able to look at an area that small and say look at all the things that we can do and you bring out this list that should be um, a serious catalyst to move and expand the project because I would assume that if I were an urban planner or an economic development professional or agency that you know where everyone's saying okay well what's the proof that this works what's the proof that this has economic value to for a community to be able to go in and say, look, this is what we've done, and we've done this in a year, and we've done this with a limit on you know where this technology rests. So don't you really think this has uh, you know a just is a justification to expand this project in a much broader scale? Right. Well, again, I just I just I agree with you, and I think it ties back to the proposition that it very much helps in every community to have a proof point. Mm-hmm. And again, being an academic for, for all these years, you know, piloting is, is second nature to us. Um, I think there's a reason to have pilots. Um, obviously, uh, when you are uh, on the leading edge and you are trying never-before-seen activities, uh, there are all kinds of natural points of resistance, and you have to create these proof points to be able to, to see what uh, what will work. And indeed, if things don't work, you would have preferred to just do uh, a, a modest uh, initiative um, and either do a mid-course correction or shut down the activity if, in fact, it, it proves not to work out. And I think, you know, uh, when people come to visit us in Cleveland uh, from all over the world and from certainly across the United States, uh, when we share some of our experience, it includes, you know, from my perspective, a recommendation to try some variation on the theme, uh, you know, of a model uh, block or two or neighborhood, we're, we've just launched. Uh, we're, so that's not quite fair to say we're just about to launch after Labor Day um, our second uh, beta block uh, project, um, and that will actually be on the as a result of so much interest locally. We're actually turning it into um, a beta block contest where 
uh, neighborhood blocks are actually going to uh, be asked to uh, create the most compelling reason why their uh, 200 or whatever number of homes uh, should be uh, the next uh, gigabit fiber of the home project in the country or certainly in Cleveland um, and let them pitch it. And we're going to actually let the whole city, uh, in this case, three cities, Cleveland, East Cleveland, or Cleveland Heights, actually vote online for the, the most compelling uh, reason. And again, we think it's all about trying to extend the narrative uh, about uh, why this is compelling by letting neighbors actually put the compelling reasons into their own words and into their own proposals. And they then become the drivers for expansion. Right, and this goes back actually to your sort of, I think, underlying, uh, you know, uh, and long-standing personal passion and commitment that you have, which is that, you know, neighbors, neighborhoods should have some capacity to be in control of their own destiny when it comes to broadband futures. Uh, that's, you know, that's the nature of, of fighting the good fight, your book. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, you know, this is one way to instantiate that. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the middle of a uh, national survey of economic development professionals and folks uh, engaged in, in economic development activities. And, in fact, on my website, uh, www.cjspeaks.com, there's a link to the survey. And I've done this for a couple of years now, uh, trying to gauge from the trenches, you know, where the economic impacts tend to be. Um, one of the things that's becoming uh, that I hear being brought up more and more is this question of if I build a network and one of my goals is economic development, do I put more focus on trying to attract new business because there are various stories of Lafayette, Louisiana, and a number of places where they brought in you know big high profile new companies with a lot of jobs right and there's no discredit to that at all I mean that's obviously a value point. Or do you spend at least the first year focused primarily on the businesses that you already have in place? And I'd like to get you know your perspective on that question. I don't think there's necessarily a right or a wrong answer, but if you had to you know devote a majority of your resources to one or the other, which one? Where would you go with that? Well, I think it, you know it varies by by marketplace. You know, we've been on a uh, an eight year journey with uh, the creation of one community to try to you know always be tying the uh, rollout of broadband services to economic development. And so we, ha- I mean, I certainly have developed a kind of personal take on it, which is uh, you know we're very much a Cleveland is very much a a second uh, or third tier uh, you know sports city. Uh, uh, you know we can't compete with the big marketplaces. You know when we when we scout talent, oftentimes they get scooped up, and and rather than trying to, in general, including in the broadband space, uh, trying to uh, attract, um, you know, uh, the next Amazon.com. Um, you know, our, the, in truth, our goal for broadband, and I think it's fair to say, in growing our IT capacity in the community, has been about growing our own. Um, and I think that uh, there aren't unlimited resources in a community. I don't have any problem with attraction. I think, in fact, it's a terrific thing to happen. But I think attraction would prob- will probably work on, in a more sustainable basis when it's built on very strong local foundations. And I think if we focus in on growing our own, 
through making sure that when students graduate from a great university like Case Western Reserve or any of the other 23 universities in Greater Cleveland, uh, that they see their own futures uh, to include the prospect of uh, contributing to or starting their own uh, companies or nonprofits uh, here in the Cleveland area. I mean, I think that we stand a better chance doing that than trying to attract somebody who's graduated from another great university into the Cleveland market or, you know, a, a more mature market. Again, nothing wrong with trying to attract, through, you know, through the large work, that, uh, you know, uh, a Chamber of Commerce or a mayor's economic development a coordinator deals with uh, to try to attract that talent. Uh, that has to go on, but uh, I think it's I think it strengthens and is more sustainable if it uh, builds on the top of a build-your-own strategy. Because mm-hmm. it just it's interesting, Google just a couple of days ago announced that they're setting up a program to get local businesses and, uh, and move them online. And um, they're, let's see, what did I say? I got, I got an email about this where, so they're having two days where they're, they've got people with all kinds of software tools and so forth, and if you're a sole proprietor or whatever, and you show up, they're going to give you on-the-spot consultation and actually set up your initial web presence. Um, which I think, you know, is a pretty good, uh, you know, way way to do that. I mean, does that sound like a, you know, for other of these uh, GigU members, I mean, does that sound like a reasonable uh, step in, in taking care of your own? Well, I mean, I, you know, it sounds, I don't know anything about the specific Google initiatives that you're referring to, but, uh, you know, obviously when you are, uh, trying to launch uh, or sustain a relatively uh, small enterprise, uh, you know, you, you are looking for a couple of different things. You're looking for the tools. Uh, you're looking for a, a market, whether it's local or, or, or elsewhere. And you're also looking for, uh, you know, a community of, of uh, fellow travelers uh, it's that synergy. It's it's it, that's all around the buzz that gets created. Uh, you know, when you get an incubation kind of environment or a hothouse kind of environment, and so uh, you know, those are the kinds of things that if you're trying to grow your own. And again, I don't know that you know that's the reason that any of the gig you folks uh, are involved. I don't know that. I mean, I know, I know in some communities the economic development piece is, is quite compelling and important because I've been in on those conversations. I'm certainly not sure that it's the case for all of them, but uh, you know, growing jobs uh, is absolutely top of mind, and you know, a lot of people would say you know, growing jobs is the undergirding of growing economic development. Um, and you know, how, how we get there is, is obviously a portfolio approach of lots of different things. Um, I, I think most of the second and third tier uh, cities. Um, and certainly the rural communities are faced with a strategy about how to lead in your portfolio. And I guess I would continue to go back to, you know, you want to take advantage of tools like the ones you described from the Google, Google Online Business Initiative. Uh, you want to identify w- what local market opportunities there are and then figure out whether you can take advantage of fiber optics to connect you to, uh, you know, local, regional, statewide, national, and international markets um, and and uh, and then obviously you're also looking, I imagine, to sort of create a community of uh, fellow of fellow uh, travelers, and that doesn't have to be because they're in the warehouse right next door to you. Um, but there is some value to that, uh, certainly when you're doing software development or services. Mm-hmm. 
So to maybe summarize three takeaway points, if a community's goal is to create a strong uh, layer of home-based businesses, and you got a lot of people unemployed, you got a lot of people underemployed, uh, you know, the, the option for home-based businesses um, may seem like a good one. What are maybe two or three things that you'd recommend for a community to to make that happen? Well, I guess I would start by uh, you know by sharing that a lot of it has to do with uh, creating conversations in the community about common common goals and collective action. Um, and in, I, I think one of the things that especially for the kind of community that you identified as opposed to one in a, necessarily in a major city where there's, uh, there's simply a, a different threshold of activity already underway. But in, in these other environments that, that you referred to, I, I think a lot of it is around uh, communities taking control um, of, their, of their own uh, blueprints development and then encouraging the, the marketplace uh, and the public sector uh, and others to engage uh, in helping to uh, you know, layer in uh, you know, methodologies uh, and pilot activities and ultimately business plans and other things to uh, uh, you know to advance the activity. So I think number one is essentially you know, getting your act together, um, and I, I think that that's certainly an important piece. Um, I, I probably second along the line is really to try to figure out. Uh, to create uh, a, a proof point, uh, I think communities all over the, the nation, especially those of us who are in tougher uh, neighborhoods and cities than others, uh, are all about the show me stuff. I mean, I don't think you can. Uh, rare is the opportunity to, to make a, a speech or write an article or do a, a radio show or a, a webcast uh, and make a compelling argument that will have people uh, say, "Oh, sure, I buy that," and actually. You know, take time and uh, effort and technology to advance it. So I, I think communities would be well advised to think about uh, proof points um, and then evaluate you know what's working and make make the mid course corrections um, and then take that evidence uh, you know together. Um, and I guess the third piece I would say, Craig, and it's maybe a bit counterintuitive. To a lot of folks, especially those of them who are interested in in the kind of um, community uh, broadband activities that I know you've been engaged in, is is uh, I would say don't be afraid of the marketplace. Uh, in fact, not only should communities be afraid of the marketplace, I think uh, from our experience with one community uh, and the Case Connection Zone, uh, in my view, to the extent that those projects have been successful, and I believe both um, are, one community is much more mature than the Case Connection Zone, uh, the reason is because of the leadership, and the leadership in those cases are both uh, cases of serial entrepreneurs uh, who have have done well and uh, have and know how to navigate and know how to do finance and know how to do uh, new market tax credits and know how to do stuff that typically, certainly in universities, we don't do all that well. And I imagine that a lot of community bro broadband folks who are really uh, you know, in the grassroots, uh, oftentimes don't have those skills. And so rather than simply saying, uh, you know, it's uh, a binary choice of the market versus uh, the neighborhood, uh, I think uh, it's a third suggestion I would offer to, to uh, communities is to uh, embrace the hybrid model of working 
in uh, where it makes sense, um, a blended model of, of uh, pub- public-private partnerships, but don't be afraid to engage in experienced private sector entrepreneurs who can really lead you uh, through uh, the navigation uh, of the opportunities and, and help you over the challenges. Mm-hmm. So to shift just a little bit, um, technology, how effective uh, is it, do you think, to create a strategy in which uh, fiber is the base and on top of that you build wireless, similar to what is happening in Chattanooga and Santa Monica in that they both have uh, gigabit networks. In Santa Monica's case, actually, their network will take you up to 10 gigs. And they are at different stages of implementing a plan of putting wireless on top of that to get into um, low-income areas to provide, uh, you know, an avenue. you got all these smartphones and, and things which tend to be, as uh, surveys are showing, are very popular in, uh, in, in certain demographics. And that is, that's part of their urban strategy, if you will. Is is that a good one? Does it need tweaking? What do you what do you think? Well, I mean, again, I think uh, there's probably uh, all kinds of different models that are out there, and it depends, you know, whether you what you're really aspiring to is to provide consumer access to the broadband, or whether you're trying to provide services, uh, you know, as a public sector provider of services, libraries, healthcare, schools, and the like. I think there there are different strategies. Does it make sense to have a blended approach to your technology stack? Absolutely. I mean, there's I have no doubt about it. Uh, you know, should it involve? You know, there's all kinds of opportunities to debate different fiber strategies. You know, home runs like we do here at Case Western Reserve in our Case Connection Zone versus a, a ponds uh, architecture. Should you uh, you know where where and how should you uh, extend your wireless uh, services? Uh, but you know, at, at its core, uh, you know, these are all about um, you know uh, hybrid models that extend connectivity uh, for the kind of use cases that make sense. And again, I think it depends on what whether you're simply saying what I want to be able to do is is to go to Facebook, uh, and how do I do that? And do I need you know do I need fiber to do that? The answer is absolutely not. Uh, do I need to do if I want to actually have uh, a uh, an interactive uh high definition uh health consultation where the doctor is actually using a high def camera for doing the scope of my ear or my of my GI tract and talking to me uh, and bringing in a, a consult a, a, another consultant to take a look at the evidence uh, will wireless work not likely not you know not likely if it has to do with things that uh, around which jitter and latency uh, matter uh, quite a bit mm-hmm. so basically there's definitely strength in the uh the hybrid approach Cause I know yeah i think you embrace i think you embrace the hybrid model we could stand to have fewer um sort of uh uh, sort of wars over you know the orthodoxy of either a uh, you know fiber only versus a wireless only all that seems to me to be absolutely uh, missing the point and and actually ends up creating a, uh, more confusion in the marketplace and uh, those statements end up getting misused um, all the way up to congressional hearings and perhaps higher uh, rather than simply saying you know there, there is a pragmatism. 
that is informed by the use case. I I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Uh, let's shift a little bit again. I want to talk about USF reform, USF reform, Universal Service Fund reform, but in the context of the Lifeline program, and there's a partner program with that, which is basically a program you uh, are, are able to get basic telephone services for $10 a month. And now they want to modify this program so that it can uh, encourage broadband use. And so I have two theories. I want to see what your your thoughts are on those. Um, one approach to me would be, you know, ten dollars doesn't do a whole lot for you if your if your basic internet bill is twenty five or thirty five bucks or more per month. So I think that if you aggregated the payments from a community, so you've got ten thousand people that are identified within a city or a neighborhood as uh, low-income and eligible for that $10 lifeline subsidy, that you aggregate that m- amount together for the group and for you know for the year and then go out to all sectors, the, the private sector, non-private sector, uh, I'm sorry, the, the non-profit side, and say, look, you know, we've got this much money, we want a broadband solution, and see what those entities come back with. Um, so that's one. And then um, concurrent with that, I think that any program that you get, encourage, fund, whatever, should have some mechanism or programs in place by which people participating are are encouraged to advance themselves. So it's not that you can take this subsidy or this be part of this program for 12 or 24 months and go home, but that you have to show – you're getting a job, that you're getting advancements, that you're doing something to advance yourself. Are these practical theories? I mean, is it possible to do those? Do they make sense, or should we look at another way? Well, I have to confess, Craig, I think it's above my pay grade. I mean, you know, (laughs) I I, I, I think these issues are are enormously important to sort out. Um, You know, I, I know so little about the machinations of how, um, you know the uh, distribution of how these programs get assigned and what the intent is, and then what happens during rulemaking, and and then you know then the, the small detail of actually implementing them. Uh, you know, I guess you know the only advice is to be sure that the the principles are very clearly articulated, and and then hope that uh, the rulemaking doesn't completely bastardize um, you know the intent and. Uh, I, I have no, pro- you know, I have no problem understanding at least at a very high level what the initial, uh, you know, effort to codify, uh, you know, what a universal service fund is for. Um, I, I've had all kinds of uh, head scratchers uh, in terms of how it actually get put into rules and and then bizarre scenarios in terms of how it actually gets implemented. So, um, you know, I'd encourage you, uh, you know, I know you've got a, a bully pulpit on this one, you know, to. To keep speaking your mind and encouraging, uh, you know, your readers and listeners to uh, to share theirs, and and the only advice is to stay real clear on the principle on the principles. Mm-hmm. Well, so okay, so taking USF out of the the picture specifically, in um, urban environments, does it make sense to try to do the aggregated funds approach? In other words, 
um, again, you know, you've got X number of people living in a community. Is there a way of saying, okay, we are maybe capable and interested in spending ten dollars or fifteen or twenty dollars a month, right, into into services? Maybe that's what we're sp- we're spending already. But take the approach of let's pool the money and find a solution for the community, versus everyone going out, you know, putting their you know relatively small amount of money in a dispersed fashion. Yeah, uh, yeah, or some kind of blended arrangement, I suppose. I mean, you know, I'm not sure it has to be an either-or scenario, but uh, the idea that you have to build community capacity for communities to be sustainable and not just uh, reduce everything down to the individual billing address, uh, that makes some sense. Um, uh, does it make sense in, uh, you know, the, the farm, um, you know, out in the middle of rural America? Uh, no, and or maybe not so obviously, and so you know how we attend to that complexity as part of universal service and you know pooling versus direct uh, in the urban context it does, but you know does it work for every neighborhood? Some neighborhoods are more organized and have a better sense of common purpose uh, than others. Uh, can that create other bureaucracies, hierarchies, and disenfranchisement? Sure. I mean, you know, I think these are all local, all subject to making sure that the intent is clear, uh, that to the extent that it's possible, you know, you afford, uh, you know, individuals to do more than respond as individuals to their broadband needs through things like collective action. Obviously, you know, just as we come to the end of our time, you know, I want to say that I think that that's what we've tried to do with Gig.U. You know, it is a form of collective action among um, obviously, uh, some of the nation's most uh, prestigious and, generally speaking, well-off uh, research institutions uh, who are trying on their own to exercise collective actions, but to do it not only in a self-serving way, but also in support of the broader mission of all of our institutions to try to uh, reach out and uh, and, in- and engage in a meaningful way uh, in community priorities. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I, I can see where that that would work. Uh, yeah, and you're right. We do have just a couple of minutes. Um, in one minute, and a, no pressure or anything, but are public computing centers um, a good uh, expenditure of money to get broadband adoption, or could that same amount of money be directed to other things that might be more effective, at least from your observation? Well, I mean, I think there's a role for public computing facilities. Uh, we have a terrific program here called Connect Your Community that's being choreographed by one community in partnership with the Cleveland uh, Housing uh, Network. Uh, I, I'm seeing uh, you know, people of all generations who've never used technology not only come to use it, but as I said earlier on, in the context of a compelling uh, reason to use it. Uh, would they, could, they, uh, could I imagine scenarios where they could also be uh, led to the same kind of outcomes through a different method other than uh, neighborhood computing centers, perhaps uh, leveraging libraries as community, community computing centers, churches, uh, and other facilities by all means. Uh, the sustainability model is, is uh, the sustainability of the, com- of the community computing facility is worrisome to me. Um, I, would, I would like to see, at least in our neighborhoods, some continuing effort to blend service offerings, including Network, you know, technology uh, training and support, along with, uh, you know, job training, uh, daycare, and and other things that are uh, used uh, every day in the community. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, this is going to be a be a wrap here for today. I want to thank you. Um, 
Lev, for, for spending time and, and giving us a deeper insight to both gig.u and also what you're doing there in Cleveland. And I wish you much success with both projects. Thanks, Greg, and to you too. Thanks to you and to all your listeners. Great. And I want to thank our sponsor, Hiawatha Broadband Communications, and also our media partners, GigaOM, Broadband Communities Magazine, and MuniWireless.com. Have a great day, and we'll see you next week.